When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is it. The time has come. Saturday night's all right for fighting. Get in the ring and go the distance with Fight Night with Adam Catterall and Gareth A. Davies. You're better than that. On Talk Sport. Welcome to another Fight Night show with me, Gareth A. Davis and Adam Catterall. Given the return of the UFC, we had an action-packed night building up to a major card in Jacksonville, Florida, with the backdrop, of course, of the coronavirus pandemic. Fascinating stuff going on there. But first of all, we caught up with the one and only, the former WBO World Cruiserweight Champion, Johnny Nelson. Quite being at home with your wife and your kids. This is my wife and kids. Now I've got two such family wife and kids at home and wife and kids here. He's walked onto a lot, but he's still coming forward. He's still trying to rescue it. He's been picked up by some hurtful punches, and Bot here looks gone. He looks gone, he's down. In the final round, the referee has stopped it, and Johnny Nelson from Sheffield, England, is the European cruiserweight champion to add to his British title. Success upon success upon success. That's all I want to do. Succeed. The towel's come the in. The towel's come in from the Belgian's corner. The ref hasn't seen it. He has seen it now. It's all over. And quite rightly. I thought it was on an island or nothing. Nelson was unloading his a unnecessary punishment. It's not just getting a world title. It's not just getting a European title or a British title. You know, there's, I've got bigger things than that one. Why not This is Johnny Nelson's chance at rejection. And look at this. Dazzling combinations. And he's going to stop it. It's over in the fifth round. Nelson lays the ghost to rest. Thompson protects bitterly, bitterly at the stoppage. But Johnny Nelson becomes the WBO Cruiserweight champion. That took me down memory lane. All the way back to Carl's from Germany with Marcus Butt. I'm thinking, oh my God, if you only knew it then. There was a little, <laughs> a little 11-year-old uh, Eddie Hearn stomping around there. Uh, in southern Germany, causing trouble in an empty room. So uh, uh, <laughs> he had a lot of stories behind every picture, and uh, uh, it's nice to get into them. Now, um, for our audience that are listening to this, um, Johnny and Gareth, I'd just like to apologise to everybody now uh, because Johnny and Gareth used to be lovers, and, and therefore uh, this could get—they might need to get a room at some point because uh, they, they always end up cuddling when they're ever in each other's presence. <laughs> That's because he's my white chocolate. (laughs) (laughs) 
Johnny, just on the... I'm not being drawn on this tonight. I'm not allowed to respond on air. Uh, Johnny, just on the career, because that's what you're here for, to obviously have a a look back with us over the next half an hour or so. You uh, went on uh, to become world champion at Cruiserweight and is still the longest reigning Cruiserweight champion of all time. When that career started, and for anybody that doesn't know this, when you look at that career, when it starts, and there's so much made of a... Uh, of a, an undefeated record in the modern day, it seems. But you lost, you lost those first three fights, my friend. Uh, at, those, at that particular point, did you think that you could go on to become world champ? Uh, not at all. Um, you, you can go even further than that. Back in that, I had 13 amateur fights. I only won three. Um, and then the whole point of me turning professional at the time was I thought, you know what, I might as well make some money out of this, have five fights and move on. Uh, and, and get a proper job, get do some, do some, uh, get a proper job, and do some else for a living. And so I was doing it in five fight chunks. So when I turned professional, uh, I lost my first, lost my second, lost my third. I actually, I, I wasn't going to stay in the game. You know, I just thought I, I went to the to make friends. Uh, and so eventually, it got to the point where that's where all my friends were. That's where my 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 friendship circle was. And so I loved going to the gym. The downside was I had to box. Um, uh, but all the other guys in the gym, they liked fighting. I didn't like fighting. I wasn't a hard man. I was just a man in a hard job. Uh, <laughs> just didn't want to do it, uh, but my, the, my mates did it. So when it, I eventually won one, uh, I'm a four, five, four. Damn it. All right, then we'll go on another five. We'll see how we're going with this run. And that's how I kept looking at it, thinking, right, if I, if I go five fights and don't win one, I'm done. Um, uh, and then uh, my mindset... I understand now, but now, but looking back on it, uh, Brendan, I can remember we were all yeah. onto the sauna. It was me, Prince Azim Hamid, Ryan Rhodes, um, Fidel, uh, Smith. We'd all go to the sauna every, every week, all of us sit down, and Brendan, had, he'd hold court. And as you're in, in the sauna, you drop off one at a time because the heat was that much for you. But Brendan stayed in the spot. He's talking to you, he's talking to you. So nice cheeky little bugger. He said to Brendan, Brendan, you're brainwashing us. And so so uh so Brendan just turned around and said, Yes, that's correct. I'm positively brainwashing you. What's your problem? <laughs> so so, uh, so so as Brendan's like uh, getting on at us and getting on at us, at the time he was just he was he was quoting history, he was talking about fights of yesteryear, he was talking about yeah things that had happened in our sport. So it wasn't just getting in the gym and hitting a bag or hitting the pads or sparring. It was about mentally being schooled, mentally being coached, mentally understanding what mm. our game was about. So somebody like Naz, when he was a teenager, he was a man in the ring. When I was a teenager, I was a boy in the ring. And so it took a lot longer for the penny to drop with me uh, than it did with the other guys. So everybody come through and uh, uh, we all were doing the same thing in the gym. It's just that some of us, at my development, if I when I won the British title, I didn't think I was good. I just thought they were crap. And when I won wow. the European title, I didn't think I was good. I thought they were crap. Do you understand? So I yeah. wasn't thinking I was good. I, I just thought I got lucky. They were rubbish. And, and the <laughs> penny had not dropped all this time. And Brendan saying, Johnny, you've not got the confidence to match your ability, but it will come. You're just a bit of a mummy's boy at the moment. I'm like, no, no. <laughs> then I went back to my mum's house. Mum, you said I'm a mummy's boy. <laughs> Uh, but a lot of it was a lot of uh, mental work uh, from Brendan. 
How how much does it help as well being around the talent that was in that gym? Because like you said, you've mentioned Nazi's name there. Errol Graham was obviously probably the guy that everybody was looking to in that particular gym at that time, wasn't it? So what, once you see success and the, and the methods that Brendan's putting in, I know that you're doing your footwork drills and all that, and you've just talked about the mental aspects of it. But when you're around success as well from other guys, does that help with the belief too? Massively, because you know it's real. Now, not everybody knows somebody that's as successful as that or, or famous or, 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 or a winner. Not everybody knows something like that, but when you're up close and you're rubbing shoulders with it in person with it, they, they, you now know it's possible because you know these people, men or women, are just human. So there's no difference between them and you. And so, so it's getting that mindset, getting that self-belief to think, right, what is he doing what I'm not doing? And so, so when I was rubbing shoulders with, with, with all so much talent, and it's the, the, the talent, you, you don't even know about half it. It's my good guys that were in that gym and girls that were in the gym that just drifted out of the game. I thought, wow, really? And there was so much talent. I saw so much natural, raw brilliance uh, from guys when they were training and attitudes. And you'd pick up what would work for you or what wouldn't work for you. And I was very fortunate. And, and you know what? I, I, I always was very fortunate for the fact that I lived in Sheffield and Brendan had moved from Dublin to Sheffield. Uh, I, I was fortunate to, to be able to go in his gym. And he knew me and spoke to me. I was fortunate because I saw so many other fighters come from all over the world to, to stay and live in Winkerbank just to yeah. train his gym. And it, for me, it was just two bus drives, push, bus drives away. <laughs> so I was fortunate. Uh, so I knew, I understood my position. I understood. I never thought that I would... I, 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 I never really believed... In Brent, what Brendan could see, uh, uh, but he could just see what he was years ahead of his time. So when he could see what I could achieve, I couldn't see it. And and it wasn't until uh, I was on one of my sabbaticals as a, a sparring partner away in I think it was France. I did this trip for about six years. The penny mm. finally dropped, and when it well, dropped, I was gonna, well, I did yeah. Well, I was going to say, what, what was that particular moment? Because you just mentioned there, you become British champion, you still don't believe in yourself. You become European champion, you still don't believe in yourself. Was it world champion? Was it successful defences? What was the moment that you went, I'm actually pretty decent here? The moment was, I, was, I used to spar. Uh, so it got to a point where I got a crack for the world title against Carlos de Leon. So up to that point, I actually thought I was on a hustle. And so when it came to that fight, Carlos Salim was a was a good fighter, uh, and um, I thought this is my day of reckoning. Everybody's going to know that I'm rubbish. <laughs> Everybody's going to know he's been hustling us <laughs> all the time. I knew that kid was crap, and so I bubbled it even before I got in the ring. And so when I got in the ring, I just didn't want to embarrass myself, which is exactly what I did. I ran, I held, I, I didn't do, I wasn't positive in my work, but I still got a draw. And, uh, and and but from then on, I, nobody wanted to, to put me on their shows because of the, the because there was so much expectation from the crowd, and I understand the frustration. I even understand the backlash because if you see a young man in a position to change his life and he squanders it, mm-hmm. then of course you're going to be peaked. But you know these these people have used their wages to come and see you. They, they've they've had house parties. You know I think that year it was like the highest uh, viewed sporting event that year on TV. So I didn't just have one boss telling me I was rubbish. I had I had it for years <laughs> because I had to bump into all these people saying you're rubbish. So so as a, as a being away as a sparring partner, uh, I sparred with the best in the world. I mean the elite in the world, the top Germans, the top the world champions all over. And and the final the one the day when the penny dropped 
remember I'd been away far with Marcus, um, uh, Henry Mask, uh, Axel Schultz, uh, uh, Torsten Main in, in southeast Germany. It was horrible. I'd been swam with all the European and world champions all over the place. I, I'll say I got put down once. In all the years I sparred, I got put down once by the European champion, a guy called Alex Blanchard. And I, and I was learning so much on the job because doing that, it made you want it. It made you think, actually, I can have a leave and go home. I can stick this out. And, um, and I was in France, in Toulouse, spying with uh, Fabrice Thiel. So he was a world light heavyweight champion. And I was battering him every day. And then one day, I came out of the gym. It was pouring down with rain outside. It was a, it was a, summer's, a, a rainy summer's day. And uh, there was a, a big stretch white limousine outside the gym as I'm walking out. I've got to cross the road to go to this, this little uh, uh, flat that I'm staying at. <clears throat> because you're by yourself. You ain't got no mates. You're by yourself. Mm, all day. You're yeah. training your leave. So the only time you see people is when you go to the gym to get your, your, collect your beating. So... Um, <laughs> So uh, I came out, there's a stretch limo outside, beautiful woman in there, she had a little white poodle on her lap. Remember here we go, here we go, here we go, I'm back, here we go, here we go. Another Nelson story. I, I, I lost you last time at White Chocolate, I want to hear the end of this story. So, uh, so, so as, I, as I walked out, and this beautiful woman's in the car with a little white poodle, I thought, well... I've been there weeks now, remember. And uh, and I went to cross the road and Fabrice shouts, Johnny, see you later. I turned around. That was Fabrice's wife, you know, and he jumped in the car, this stretch limo with a chauffeur driven. I'm thinking, and I'm stood there in the middle of the street. I'm seeing this car drive off in the distance. I'm thinking, what is wrong with this picture? I've just been beating this guy up for weeks. And oh, he's got the trappings of success. He's got the, 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 the wealth. He's got the fame. He's got the beautiful women. I'm thinking, wait on a minute. Well, why, why, is he do, why is he living that life and you're living this life? And then you go back and you think, you ask yourself all these questions, you're honest with yourself. And the different was, he could perform in public and I couldn't. He wasn't better than me. Yeah. It's just that he had the, he had, they had the mindset to yeah. it, hold his nerves and to perform in public. And the problem with me was, I always mistook nerves for fear. So when I was nervous, I actually thought I was scared. So when people said, Johnny Nelson is a coward, this, that, and the other, I actually believed them. Because I mixed up nerves and fear. But then when I realised what I thought was fear was actually nerves, then I thought, ah, now I made fear my friend. And I put myself in all those positions or situations where I thought I'd be scared just to check it was nerves. And then I thought, I will never lose again. I knew I would never lose again. As I said before, this is Johnny Nelson's chance at redemption. And look at this. Dazzling combinations. And he's going to stop it. It's over in the fifth round. Nelson lays the ghost to rest. Thompson protects bitterly, bitterly at the stoppage. But Johnny Nelson becomes the WBO Cruiserweight champion. And Carl Thompson is still protesting bitterly about that. You're an extraordinary man and fighter. We've been friends for a very long time. Obviously, I've covered your career as well. You mentioned Mark a couple of things I got to pick up on. You mentioned Marcus De Leon when you got the draw. The was what was it? The WBO cruiserweight title at the time, wasn't it? WBC. WBC. Yeah. You still weren't sure at that stage whether you were a heavyweight or a cruiserweight. You lost seven more fights after that. After you then went on a 15-fight winning streak that was never beaten as a world champion, and I remember. And I think you were probably 
38 when you retired, yeah? And I remember yeah. talking on the eve of your last fight with Vin Vincenzo Cantatore, yeah? In Rome, yeah. Italy, talking to Brendan, the, the late, great Brendan Ingle, and he turned to me and he, get, he you know that look when he's going to tell you something? He said, you see him there? You see the giant? He said, he could be world champion till he's 50 if he wants to be, because no one can lay a glove on him. Do you remember him saying that about you? I do, I do remember that. I do. You know what? Sometimes it's a bit embarrassing because uh, because he always he said to people, I was his great success story. I'm like, Brent, don't say that. You're like, when you say that, you think all the other kids in the gym are going to pick on you because you're like a teacher's pet. And I'm like, I just <laughs> boys. But I, uh, but you know, that's all, that's all it took. You know when they're going through talks? And when I see young sportsmen and women coming through and I have to go to talk to them, I say to them, look, if you appreciate and embrace you being special, that's half the battle won. But you've got to believe it. And, and, and what you do and look at how, your mindset, look at the commitment you gave. Once you believe you're special, then your world will, 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 will soar. And Brendan was... Yeah, but Johnny... Johnny, Johnny, you can do this. Your ring sobriquet was the entertainer, right? And here's the thing about you, and it's Brendan as well. People don't know this. He got you on radio. I mean, you've got verve and panache and character as a presenter now. Everybody knows you. I mean, even the youngsters don't even know you're a boxer now, do they? <laughs> Some of the youngsters. Because they've, see, they've seen you on TV for 20 years. But here's the thing. <laughs> Brendan actually started your media career by getting you on the radio because he knew that energy you had. That's correct, he isn't it? He did. He did. He, and how he started, but he did it with us all. Uh, he, he, he marched us all up to Radio Sheffield on a Saturday with a guy called Robert Jackson. He was a great radio host. And he's others there as guests. And Robert, like, God bless Robert. Robert, like, who you bring him to me now, Brendan? And we'd sit there and we'd sit in the, in the studio and Brendan would be talking to Robert Jackson. And Brendan would drag us up, come on, get in here. And he'd make him sit and talk on the radio. I can remember the first time I went to London to the, to the Boxing Writers Dinner at the, at the Savoy Hotel. Me, I, I was still at school then. and hmm. uh, But I looked older than what I was and Brendan borrowed me one of his jackets and uh, um, I, I used my school trousers so because they were black so I can get away with that put a shirt and tie and I went down to Savoy I said oh my <laughs> god this is London and Brendan was always on a hustle trying to jimmy in can I get this young lad in he did it with me do it with Naz if you knew the days before you knew who I was or Naz was or, or Harold Graham was we were all on the hustle and Brendan said it's about the hustle you can get you've got to get where grass can't because, and, and, and our fun used to be seeing how close to ringside we could get without having a ticket. And <laughs> you know what, do, what you're trying to do, you know, they'd be watching you, and, and then we'd go back in the gym where we used to, and that was our fun. It got, the, the fun got spot when we were given tickets. We were like, oh, come on, yeah. mess the game up. Uh, yeah. Brendan taught us to, to, to fly like cat and dogs in the gym, but travel like a pack of wolves outside of it yeah. and, and mm. if you are like that you are unbeatable and, and our gym would never have been the way it was if it wasn't for Brendan because they talk about multiculturalism as though it's a brand new thing our gym's been multicultural for 40 years uh, yeah. every creed colour male, female inside that gym you'd walk in the language was probably a little industrial but Brendan <laughs> said I want you to understand when you're in the gym 
you, you've got to be, get used to what happens outside in the world because when you go to a fight and you get to a show and your opponent's fans are shouting abuse to you or giving you a stick, you've got to be disciplined and concentrated enough to not be swayed by anything that's led to you and get them with the job. Little, a little line, sticks and stones may break my bones. And so, and, and, hey, and he also said, Johnny, never hurt you. he also said, and we hear it a lot at the moment, coughs and sneezes spread diseases. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah, he did, yeah. Yeah, he did. You know, and, and you, Brett, honestly, this guy was... I, I wouldn't have been or achieved anything uh, uh, in boxing if it wasn't for Ben. I wouldn't have boxed. Uh, and I couldn't have walked in. That, yeah, that young 15-year-old kid that walked into a gym back then, if I walked to a gym now, they'd kick me out because I had no commitment, no confidence, <laughs> no self-belief. Um, um, I looked up, I, I'm tall and skinny, but I, I completely, but I couldn't, I completely was a very nervous kid. And Brendan knew that. The first thing he did to me uh, in the gym, he said, "Come here, tell me your name." And as I'm just about to say it, he said, "And tell me about yourself for, uh, for two minutes." I started to start, stop, turn around, face the wall. He said, "Now do it facing the wall." My nose about an inch away from the wall, and I thought, "Why is this guy trying to mug me off, make me look stupid?" In hindsight, now I look back and I think this guy was building my confidence up to be in every situation, uncomfortable situation as possible. So you find comfort in being uncomfortable. Mm. Now, I, know, I saw him do that with, with Clinton Woods. I saw him do it with Lennox Lewis. You know, when they came in the gym, he did the same thing with him. Clinton Woods walked out. He said, if you go in here, I can read the work. He stormed out. Lennox was like thinking, Brendan's just a crazy old Irishman. Uh, but uh, it was, it was it, he, he trained... As much on the body, uh, on the mind, as he did on the body, and that is one thing that is missing with a lot of sportsmen and women today, putting as much effort in to mental strength, mental preparation, than it is to physical. Mm. Johnny, I've got Adam's going to love this. I've got some little dream matchups for you now. We do this with our stars on the show every week, right? Some dream matchups. Go on, Fifteen title defences, right? Some of the other great cruiserweights in their prime, and you in your prime. I'm going to start from. I'm going to start with Tony Bellew against. Uh, people are going to love this. Tony Bellew against Johnny Nelson at cruiserweight. What happens? Nelson wins by uh, stopping. <laughs> I like it. I like it. He didn't even hesitate. Um, I love it, man. Right, right. Uh, Johnny Nelson peak against David Hay peak. Johnny Nelson wins by stoppage. <laughs> Love it. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. Alexander, Alexander Usyk versus Johnny Nelson peak. Johnny Nelson wins on points. And finally, <laughs> and finally, because Johnny Nelson is now up to forty-eight, twelve, and two because he's beaten those three uh, in his record. Finally, in Vegas versus Evander Holyfield. Damn you! Damn you! I knew you'd say that! <laughs> Damn you! <laughs> John Nelson loses on, uh, on Scrappy Points loss. Oh, come on! I knew you'd go there! <laughs> hey, people forget that you were slated, of course, but I think you had an injury. You were going to fight Enzo Macronelli on the on the uh, Calzaghi Lacey undercard, yeah, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. And Enzo, and the reason why, 
I, I wanted that fight so bad because I was going to announce my retirement after that fight. I didn't, I've not told Brendan, I've not told anybody, but it got to the point where uh, it'd be a rainy morning and I used to get up and jog about three o'clock in the morning and it, it got to the point where I'd comfortably stay in bed and feel no guilt. And so I knew I, there was a problem then because I was getting complacent. The threats weren't there. And the other thing was, Enzo was, was uh, with Frank and he was big on ITV. Now, the last time the ITV audience saw me was back in 1990 when I lost to, uh, uh, Carl, when I drew with Carl Thompson. So I wanted that yeah. audience to say, I remember this guy back in 1990. He's rubbish. Then I wanted, to, wanted them to see me smash, smash Enzo. I, 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 you know, these fighters you mentioned, uh, 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 Tony Bellew, David Hay, uh, uh, 06, even Enzo. These guys, it, just because I've said what I said, this is what I believe. Uh, and you, you've got to be honest with yourself. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't say it. They may have a difference of opinion, but these guys were all top athletes, top marksmen in what they could do. The difference between them and, and me was I, I didn't uh, uh, define myself by boxing. You know, I, wasn't, I was nowhere near as hard as those boys, but I was a lot more craftier. I'd seen every part of our game and understood when you've got to box, when you've got to lose a battle to win a war, when you've got to tease someone, poke them on, make them think they've got a shot and then pick them off, when you've got to frustrate an opponent, wear them down, let them, let them make a mistake, pick them off the mistake. So I knew I was far too crafty. For all of these fighters you mentioned, the only difference was with Evander Holyfield. Evander Holyfield was a complete and utter fighting machine. He used to beat Mike Tyson at 16 when Mike Tyson was 16, beating the likes of Frank Bruno. You know, so Evander Holyfield. It's funny, you know, Johnny. I spoke, yeah, I spoke to Colin Hart the other day, and we were talking about boxing IQs, and obviously the likes of Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, all these kind of Sugar Ray Robinson. We both reckoned in a chat, just up privately on the phone, that. Evander Holyfield has one of the best fighting IQs we've ever seen. One of the most rounded fighters we will ever see. Without that, he could box, he could fight, he could punch, he can move, he can survive, he could be uh, offensive and defensive. This guy was a complete all-rounder. The only reason why the likes of Alexander Usyk is, is in the position he is now is because he's an unorthodox level, level strength fighter. You know, he's asymmetrical. He's as good left-handed as he is right-handed. His training methods are very unorthodox if you're not used to that. You know, so therefore, he's just a little smarter or thinks a little bit more out of the box than the other athletes that are around him. Now, if you understand that game, I don't mean be a student of our game. I don't mean knowing who boxed who in 1963 and won which route. You need to understand our, uh, the, the boxing. What happens in the ring, what happens out the ring, about mindset, about mental warfare. And I knew, and Brendan said to me, Johnny, you've experienced every part of boxing. You should not lose again. This is, this is before I walked into the, into the ring at the Carl Thompson fight. This is part of his pep talk. You should never lose again. You remember that. Uh, and, there you and, go. And those and he... words rang out to me, and I knew I would never lose the title again in the ring. It just wouldn't happen that way because it was virtually impossible unless I went in there and did nothing. The ever-brilliant Johnny Nelson there giving us half an hour of gold. But this week, there was some serious news in the wake of the pandemic lockdown, with the British Boxing Board of Control's General Secretary, Robert Smith, outlining the major proposals as they move ahead to try and bring back boxing in mid-July. The British Boxing Board of Control are obviously uh, making plans now to bring boxing back 
to UK soil. We kind of touched upon this a little bit uh, last week, Gareth, because I know that you've spoke quite a lot to, uh, obviously, Robert Smith. Um, and I know that behind the scenes, he's kind of told you, well, we're planning this, we're planning that and what have you. We, we had it on the show a little bit last week, but they, maybe they, they put a little bit more flesh on the bones for everybody else uh, by releasing their uh, proposals uh, this week. I know that you had a good long chat with uh, Dan Raphael this week, and I know that it was part of your conversation. I'd love to know what, what Dan's thoughts were regarding the British Boxing Border Control's protocols or guidelines uh, for promoters to, uh, to bring the sport back to UK soil in the not-too-distant future. Well, I think he's getting the same soundings, Dan Raphael, in America because they're trying to be um, as sensible as possible about doing it. And I think, you know, the likes of Bob Arum, Oscar De La Hoya and uh, uh, Leonard Ellaby and um, the PBC, the Premier Boxing Champions, are trying to just weave their way through it with proposals at the moment. Yeah. Um, and it's they're at a similar stage with the, uh, with the boxing board. I mean, in fact... You know, when, when Robert Smith, as you say, proposal is the right word, Ed, because the um, Robert Smith even called me on the Wednesday um, to clarify because people had said that out spitting was going to be outlawed. And he said, I want to clarify, we haven't outlawed it. Yeah. We are going to find a way of making everything work, but having special conditions in place. Um, because, you know, um, and I spoke to Frank Warren about this as well, Ed, um, mm. that... Boxers have got to take their gum shield out and they've got to be able to rinse blood out of their mouths or, or whatever yeah. it is and get removed spittle from their mouths. And they're going to use sealed containers or a bucket with a lid and it gets closed and it gets taken away and emptied somewhere down to a to- down in a toilet, sanitised again, brought back for the next round. They, they're gonna, he said it's just proposals. He said, no, we're not banning s- spitting into the bucket. Spitting, you know, like in football, like jockeys, no mm-hmm. one's going to be able to spit um, because... It's it's spreading something, isn't it? So it's one of those things that people have habits of doing and they're just going to have to watch themselves. But the, the, I think the big thing from the Boxing Border Control, more than anything, was reduction of numbers. Yeah. Um, very similar to what the UFC are doing tonight, really, which is try and get a sealed environment, mm-hmm. um, have the boxers in there for an entire week. Maybe they'll learn, I think, from the UFC event tonight that... Mm maybe they need to lock people away for 14 days after they've tested and then just go from there. So everyone is cleared for a quarantine period as well. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, maybe even before, because as like we said, we've been speaking about it on the show tonight, the things that have happened with the UFC this week, um, maybe having a quarantine period pre-event, so therefore they can monitor... Exactly, a, a, that's a what person. I mean. Yeah, for yeah. a fortnight. For a fortnight, yeah. maybe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. And one thing that I, I... Listen, I've said this on other programmes on TalkSport this week when I've been speaking about football and what have you. There seems to be a bit of dithering in that world where people are back and forth and money seems to be a major concern as to how they bring football back and nobody seems to be making a decision. What I, what I, I like about this, and we both said this on last week's show... Uh, regarding Robert Smith and the British Boxing Board of Control, is that they've actually taken action. They've said, right, here we go then. I know that you all want to get back. Everybody's thirsty for live sport. We've got athletes out there that need to earn a few quid to pay the rent and the mortgages and what have you. So let's come up with some proposals, some guidelines of how we go about doing that. And they're taking actual proper action, obviously guided by government and, and health officials, but they're, they're doing their best to actually outline something, so therefore people have something to work to. Whereas in other sports, it seems that they're kind of sticking the finger in their air and having a little bit of a guess at the moment. So I commend the British Boxing Board of Control for taking that action. Well, well, well I, think, I think, you know, to, to stray into football, association football here, I think the, the issue is you talk to any person, you know, be it your neighbour, be it someone that works somewhere, be it 
a football fan, they they're they're asking why are, why could football come back and make extraordinary yeah. amounts of money when we're being asked to stay at home and not mix with people? When yeah. if eight blokes go up, or eight footballers, eight blokes or women go up for a corner and and saliva and sweat um, is spreading all over each other. Why are we being asked to be in lockdown? And I think the issue of greed and money comes up then, doesn't it? Is this just mm-hmm. a money-making exercise? And it is, but the problem is, when does it begin? How does it begin? What are the what are the formations of it? What happens if someone tests the night before? Like we, as we know, as we talked about earlier on the show, the Bundesliga was about to start today. Mm. Ten of them have, have tested positive, so they've decided to delay it a bit further. All mm. of this—it's a minefield. It's like walking through a minefield right now, um, and so everybody's trying to navigate their way through it. And I think. You know, the boxing, we're kind of lucky in a weird way in this country because, or, or unlucky, some fans might see it, that we're under government in the UK. Let's say Lancashire had mm-hmm. their own government and were yep. saying, look, events can go ahead. Yeah. Well, the small hall show promoters, Steve Woods, um, uh, Steve Goodwin, um, all these guys might be putting on small hall show, shows in Lancashire. Frank Warren might be saying, yeah, we're going to do Manchester Arena. Um, mm-hmm. Eddie Hearn might be saying, yeah, we're going to do the same, but we're going to take it a week at a time. So in America, they can do that in certain states because they're at different stages of lockdown. Yeah. So, you know, all of us are navigating this day by day. We're all at navigating our own route back into normal life. So we have to bear with everyone. We have to understand what they're saying. I mean, it, on another matter... This weekend, like I was on a conference call with uh, Mauricio Suleiman um, earlier in the week, and he was talking about having remote judging, which mm. I spoke about with Dan Rayfield as well. And I, I know you'll have a view on this as well, yeah. but remote judging is a very unusual thing because in a close fight, you can be at ringside and score the fight and yeah. you see it a certain way and everybody on social media is asking you arguing rather with you afterwards saying what fight were you watching well I was watching a different fight from you I wasn't watching listening to the commentary I wasn't watching it in 2d or 3d on tv and I was watching it ringside from my unique angle from Mm. my chair and that's how I saw it so the subjectivity of it all comes into play I, I I'm not sure about judges from remote in my view no, no, listen, I'm the same. Um, I'm not a big fan of remote judging at all. Um, but in, in these unprecedented times, I'm open to every angle, any, any type of solution that comes our way. I mean, I don't see, I think we can still keep judges quite remote, can't we? Could we, could we I mean, they're remote anyway. They're, one's on one side of the ring, one's on the other side of the ring, one's on the other side of the ring of that, you know? So, I, listen, like I said, everybody will have an opinion and I'm open to hearing all those types of solutions of how we get this sport that we love uh, back um, on the television or back in the arena so for, so for people to enjoy it. I think one thing that we will all agree on, though, of which is, uh, I think, across all sports as well, is that testing is paramount. You know, we have to... These sporting mm. organisations, whether it's the British Boxing Board of Control, whether it is a promoter or, or whoever, they've got to invest in the testing. We've got to know who has or who hasn't, who's had or who hasn't had uh, this, uh, this virus in order for us to be able to move forward and make the right quarantines and make the right... Um, to put the right isolation protocols in place uh, for us to be able to uh, to move forward. Yeah, um, exactly. And, and if you look at, um, you know, again, speaking to Frank Warren, he's saying, look, it's not... 
the board paying for all these things. It will be the promoters paying. Yes. I'm doing this, he's saying, to keep... I, I mean, I mentioned it on, I think it was Drive or H&J the other day, that uh, having spoken to Frank, that they are only trying to put boxing back on in mid-July to keep boxing alive. It's not a money-making exercise. No, it's they'll run It's to create events. Yeah. Exactly, I, I, to run it a lot. To just, you know... No, I, listen, no I agree with you that, you know, when... <clears throat> The smaller promoters that you were mentioning a couple of moments ago, I think they're going to find this very, very difficult to come back, especially without being able to sell tickets for their events. They don't have television deals, a lot of these guys, you know. They're putting them out on YouTube and and various things like that. They make their money from selling their tickets, as do the fighters. Whereas you've got Frank and Eddie, who have two, two different TV deals, obviously BT Sport and Sky Sports. You would think that they could survive, but they're not going to be surviving at major profits because, like you said, there's only five events. And are the TV companies going to be putting in the same amount of money that they have done previously? Probably not. I'm sure they'll pay some for it, but it will be at a considerable lower rate. And like you said, these promoters are putting these events on and they will lose money for, on some of the events. Yeah, and they're, they're going to have to put... Exactly. They're going to have to put all the star, uh, all, 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 all the boxers and, and all the staff up in hotels. They're going to have to be there for Absolutely. a period of time. Um, it's, it, it's, it's a very, very uh, complex... Process and, and I've even spoken to some small hall uh, promoters this week, and I, I hope we're going to do something with uh, with our producer Ed Huntley next week on the show because um, some of them are very unhappy as well with the board um, procedures. Because remember, a lot of the small hall show guys um, they make their money those boxes by selling tickets. Yeah, that's how they actually make their money. If they can get four hundred people to come to an event, five hundred people to come to an event that isn't televised, they get a portion of that of that purse, if you like, from the ticket mm. sales. So that's not. There's no provision for that at the moment. They're only going to allow uh, fight, um, events for TV at the moment. So they're not happy in that way. But I do think from tomorrow onwards, when Boris Johnson outlines his thing when the Queen gives us a good luck message when the, that there will be more of a relaxation and we will slowly ease back it is you know we're going to have to walk before we can run with all of these things like us returning to venues as media as yeah. broadcasters as it's all step by step by step and you know there's going to be casualties along the way that's what worries me and I don't just mean people going out of business there are people that are going to get this before there's a vaccine for it and we may not see them again and that is what worries me Adam Fight Night's boxing commentator Don McGuinness dug into the archives this week he went back to the duel in the desert George Groves against Callum Smith for the number one position in the world super middleweight division in the world boxing super series final Well, more than a year before Anthony Joshua avenged that defeat to Andy Ruiz by reclaiming the heavyweight world title belts in the Saudi desert, TalkSport was there to witness the first ever professional boxing bout in the kingdom. Callum Smith challenged George Groves for the World Boxing Super Series Muhammad Ali Trophy and the latter's WBA Super Middleweight title. The whole process of selecting a time and place for the final had been hampered by the shoulder injury suffered by Groves in his victory over Chris Eubank Jr. in the semi-final. Eventually, the city of Jeddah got the nod for fight night on Friday the 28th of September 2018.
When we set up this tournament, we were looking to take it all over the world. A lot of competition to take the finals into certain places, and we found it very interesting to bring the first big fight to the Middle East. And it's, it's I think it's historic, the first big fight down here, hoping that it can become a regular fixture and that we can build the sport down here. Callis Owlin there, the frontman of the tournament and one of the creators of the concept, the idea being the WBSS having the best of each division, getting the chance to fight each other in an extremely lucrative knockout competition. The choice of the venue for this one, the oil-rich Sharia Law State, it did raise eyebrows and presented a few issues for all those set to travel, including Callum Smith and particularly his trainer, Joe Gallagher. It's been a nightmare. My visa's only just come today. I fly tomorrow. Um, and then writing down stuff that you're allowed to bring and not bring in. So it's just making sure no one does anything by error, as in Rome do as the Romans do, as they say. It's unusual and it's probably not ideal if you're a British boxing fan, but for me, from a selfish point of view, I'm fighting for a world title against George Groves, regardless of where it is in the world. And my objective's still the same, is to go there and beat him regardless of where it is and to come on world champion. In the end, there were no hiccups for Team Smith on the journey to Jeddah, and once established at their luxurious hotel overlooking the Red Sea, everything fell into place. Rooftop swimming pool, the boxing gym was just around the corner, and a coffee shop over the road that sold Vimto smoothies, a particular treat for the Mancunians in the party. Turns out the drink's a big deal in Saudi, hugely popular. Anyway, on to the final press conference on a Wednesday in the city centre hotel a few miles inland. Both teams were greeted by local dignitaries on arrival, along with the only man to reign undisputed as both cruiserweight and heavyweight champ, Evander Holyfield. Although it's fair to say he may have needed just a little help in identifying both Smith and Groves. I haven't seen neither one of the guys fight because they hadn't been on television in America. And so the whole big thing is that, you know, quickly after the first few rounds, I can pretty much tell you how it's going to end up. (laughs) While the press conference, hosted in a function room with high ceilings adorned with swirling chandeliers, it was all very respectful. A key talking point, though, was the Groves' shoulder injury that delayed the fight. Would it hold out? Well, after formalities, they all spoke again to talk sport. Here are the thoughts of Callum Smith, George Groves and the latter's trainer, Shane McGuigan. He mentioned it about five times. When he, I think he was asked about it once and he kept just mentioning it. And don't know, maybe he's getting his excuse lines up ready for no when I beat him. The shoulder is a good, strong, solid shoulder. It, if it fails me on fight night, I'll be more surprised than absolutely anyone else. And I do not have, for a second believe that that's going to happen. And I'm inspiring cruiserweights because it's hard to find six foot three two middleweights. And they're big, strong guys. They've been tugging on it, they've been wrestling with it, they've been, they've been biting it if you give them a chance. So uh, the shoulder is, is flying. George is a very smart fighter, he's, he's a thinker, he's got heavy hands, he can control the base. There's no decline in him now, and I feel like he's got definitely a few years in him. Once all press requirements had been dealt with, both teams headed back to their respective bases. Few distractions, of course, no problem for the boxers, not exactly ideal for the small band of UK press who had absolutely no chance of enjoying a couple of beers. But anyway, the next day was the final formality. Thursday, the weigh-in at the same venue as the presser, all eyes on the scales. Chief support on fight night defeated semi-finalist Chris Eubank Jr. against Ireland's JJ McDonough. Strong kid. He's a tough competitor. He's had a lot to say leading up to the fight. Didn't say anything when he was face-to-face with me, but I'm I'm expecting to go out there guns blazing, which always makes for a very exciting fight. It's a great chance to get the fight and I'm going to take it and I will try my best, that's all I can do and I believe it can be. If, if I fly half the way I can fly, I know myself it can be. On to the weigh-in for the main event and both Smith and Groves were both relaxed, they made weight easily, they did the head-to-head, both had their say with an on-stage flash TV, both thinking the fight goes early. 
Then it was back to the digs for them. But as the fighters were fueling on their way out, there was an almighty commotion as Prince Nassim Hamed entered the room. The place went into meltdown, locals clamouring for selfies. It's fantastic. It's nice to be on Arab soil. It's just good to be in a position while we can raise uh, our heads high for them to see their champion that, that will never, ever really disappear. He's uh, set his stamp on the sport in an unbelievable way, so why shouldn't they be uh, very, very proud and very, very happy? Let's get it on. There he is, the unique, ever-humble, third-person-speaking Prince Nassim. Well, he certainly was guest of honour ringside at the King Abdullah Sports City Arena 24 hours later. The indoor venue, half an hour's drive north of the city, is set next to a 63,000-capacity football stadium. The venue had staged WWE's Greatest Royal Rumble just a few months previous, and this new boxing crowd, around 10,000 or so, was certainly enthusiastic. The great and the good of Jeddah society, men and women, all desperate to be entertained. On the undercard, local fighter Zuhar Al-Qatani, he got them in the mood. There was a fine performance from Durham's Darren Surtees, who stopped Birmingham's Kane Baker, but Eubank McDonough was bizarre. McDonough not quite backing up the pre-fight chat, retiring on his stool before the fourth round. There was more needle in the post-fight TV interview when McDonough reacted furiously to Eubank's claim he quit. The main event, though, didn't disappoint. Ladies and gentlemen, tonight we present Rowdy in Saudi. Good right to the body from Groves and a smile on the face of Smith. Smith's unloading. He's got him in the corner. Big shot. And the second oh, he's gone down. Groves has gone down. He's gone down in the seventh round. Big trouble. Trying to clear his head. Is he going to make it up? He's not. It's all over. No shoulder issues for Groves. Smith just too good on the night he finally achieved his goal. The winning dressing room post-fight, not surprisingly, a couple of hours after his arm had been raised, it was a joyous affair. The thoughts now of Joe Gallagher, Callum Smith and promoter Eddie Hearn. He beat the number one recognised super middleweight in the world and to do it in that fashion, so brutal, so patient and to do it over here in Saudi Arabia, everyone's got to remember where Callum Smith became world champion and his dreams come true tonight. Well, Callum, you've had a few hours to digest what's just happened. Has it in any way sunk in yet? No, not really, to be honest with you. I don't think it will for, for a while. It, it feels like a normal win, but when I look and see all the belts and they're actually mine and I've achieved what I wanted to do since I was a little boy, it's, it, it is something special. When you get nights like tonight, it just makes you realise how lucky we are to be in this sport. A credit to the World Boxer Super Series for trying something different. Well, following on from that groundbreaking night, Eddie Hearn has, of course, promoted that mega Joshua Ruiz heavyweight fight in Riyadh. The Saudis, they want more. Meanwhile, Smith has fought just twice since then, blowing away Hassan and Dam in Chicago, along with a laboured and controversial win over John Ryder. The future is still very bright for this amiable and beaten scouser, regardless of whether or not he can land that dream fight with Saul Canelo Alvarez. For Groves, well, that one proved to be the final hurrah, the last fight of a great career ending in the desert. For all involved, a unique trip and an unforgettable Arabian night. There you go. Fantastic night for Callum Smith, becoming the number one super middleweight champion of the world, beating George Groves and Don McGreenis very kindly comes and joins uh, myself and Gareth on the show right now. What an experience, mate. The first of many, it seems, now for uh, Saudi Arabia because it, it, it seems quite a popular destination for fight sports. 
Well, I think it's, it's certainly going to be, isn't it? It's where the, the dollars are, if you like. And I, and I think once some kind of normality comes back to it, then I'm sure Eddie Hearn, as you heard there, you know, it, I think a, a switch was flicked in his head. He was out there experiencing that World Boxing Super Series final, Callum Smith being his man. But of course, it wasn't his gig. It was, uh, you know, the, the, Callum Sowland was the main man in terms of the, the spokesman for the World Boxing Super Series. But Eddie, I think he took a lot in. And as we've seen, you know, again, he's taken Joshua Ruiz, the second fight, out to the desert. And I think, you know, Eddie liked that experience. He, he enjoyed the Smith Groves experience and, mm. and again, knows that that's where the, there is a lot of money to be made. So it was a, it was a very unique experience, a, you know, a strange place to go in so many ways. But in terms of, you know, the way that sport was produced on the night, if you like, it, it, it all worked fine and we've seen it since. From, from a fan's point of view, Dom, I mean... We've been all over the world, and obviously most recently in Las Vegas for uh, for Wilder Fury, and it was absolutely pandemonium. But from a pan, uh, fan's point of view in the Middle East, what was it like? That what was the what was the atmosphere like uh, on the night in Jeddah? It's just very different. Everything is different. You know, the travel is different. You get you get there, and you, you know. Again, there was a little bit, as you heard in the package, of trepidation before people went out there. What can we bring? How careful do we have to be when we go there? You know, from women's perspective, if there are any in the in the travelling party, what do they have to do? There's a lot to take in. Uh, and there were a lot, you know, even getting the visa was quite a, a prolonged experience getting that sorted. And then mm. when you arrive there, it does kind of hit you in the face. I mean, I arrived, it was late at night, it was about midnight, and a load of pilgrims had just flown in from India. And it took forever to get through immigration. And, and then you were quizzed quite a lot, uh, you know, at, at that point. And there was just a lot of things like that. But And again, when you, it's in your head, well, we're going into the unknown. So there is a tiny little bit of you know, kind of trepidation. But everything was fine, really. And there was no issues with it. For, uh, I, didn't, I didn't find anybody that had any issues with anything. It's just that obviously from a fan's perspective, when you go in there, you know, it's when in Rome. It is absolutely that. You, you do, uh, you know, you stick by the customs. You've got to be careful. You've got to think about everything you do. You've got to think about your dress code. You've got to think when you leave the hotel where you can and can't go or where you should go. You know, it's just very different. Obviously, it's very dry. There, there was no <laughs> situation where you're going to get a beer. There was none of that. You know, you, the minute All you the get there. Well, the crucials. Well, yeah. exactly. I couldn't wear, well, that was the first thing I did when I got back. and It won't surprise you. But it's, uh, you know, that's, that's just not going to happen. So you, you get used to the minute you're there. You think, right, well, yeah. that's not happening. You know, the hotel is it's very dry. Uh, at the hotel, the service and the food and everything else at the hotel, I was staying with in where Callum Smith was staying. I was in the same the Smith Team Smith camp, and the hotel was brilliant. The food was brilliant. So punters, if they were to go out there, you know the service and things like that, that that's fine. It was all Filipino staff in the hotel I was in, and they were they you know they were treating Callum like a superstar. They loved the boxing, and obviously Manny's their man, but they were really into it. So it was great. You know the welcome for from the hotel staff and the, and everything was brilliant in that point of view. But there's nothing to do. You know you, you, if you're looking at Vegas and you're talking about Vegas, yeah, we know what Vegas is all about. I mean that's in your face in a totally different way but there's nothing you can't do or get in Vegas whereas yeah. it, it couldn't be more different I mean, you know there isn't really any entertainment forget the the alcohol situation there's not really a great deal certainly in Jeddah even though that's the coastal place and they're really trying to make you know there's lots of building work going on lots of hotels being built and they do want to make it like a, a Dubai destination but you know, I think it's going to be very hard to tempt too many people in there when it's still so conservative mm. and there are still so many rules and regulations. So, again, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there are places to, to eat well and do all that, but there's not an awful, well, there's, there's no nightlife. Mm. Well, it's interesting, Dom. You know, it's very interesting what you're saying. Of course, what we've had now is three events out there. We had Amir Khan against Billy Dibb in mm -hmm. Jeddah, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yeah. We had, we had um, Callum Smith, when he rose to number one, of course, 
uh, in, in a brilliant fashion against George Grove, signalled the end for him. And obviously we've had Anthony Joshua in the Andy Ruiz rematch. Um, coming out um, courtesy of uh, IFL TV today, they sent me a video. Um, Bob Arum is saying that there are definitely talks going on in Saudi Arabia with and for Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, but not before they both meet the opponents they're scheduled to meet. But there are preliminary talks. Now, I wonder, like you say, you mentioned Jeddah there, which is a more open kind of holiday resort, mm. whether they will go for somewhere with a massive site fee that will attract a lot of Britons to go out there to... to to, to watch the event, to witness that history there, if they do go with Saudi Arabia or Jeddah putting up an enormous, you know, site fee, we're understanding, you know, in the region of 150 million quid. So it would not surprise me. We're on the way to having an event or two every every year there, in my view. Yeah, I think that anything is doable. And I think that if they really want to do this and want to showcase Saudi, and, you know, obviously there's, there's all sorts of question marks over the regime and human rights and all the rest of it. If they really want to make a big effort and start cooperating with, with, with you know, with countries around the world and trying to make it this big destination, there is still a bit of work to do. But I've, I've no doubt they can do it because what they would probably do mm. if it was Jeddah and a mega fight of Fury <clears throat> against Joshua, you know, it's different to a Smith Groves. What they'd probably end up doing is building fan parks and making sure there is entertainment yeah. everywhere now i only saw a little bit of jeddah so i can't speak for the whole of jeddah i mean what i saw it was limited and there wasn't really much to do they might argue and say well you didn't go the right places you could have gone here you could have gone there you could have, there's no drink but you could have done this that and the other so you know i i only saw the little bit i saw so i'm sure they could do anything the money that they have they could they could build a mini city to cater for anyone coming into saudi arabia it's as simple as that just like a tournament a world cup or whatever they build fan parks and they do all that i'm mm. sure they would think of doing things like that now again it would be interesting to see if they relaxed the rules like a qatar or a dubai in terms of making certain hotels areas where you know, non-Saudis could go and drink or whatever. I don't know. It seems a long way off from what I saw. It doesn't seem like that's ever that's that's going to change anytime soon. But who knows? So I think that you know, if they if they made the visa situation really easy as well, or maybe you know there was a non-visa situation for a sporting event, so a waiver program, something like that. Anything that made it really easy because uh, it's not far away. You know, it's a six-hour flight. It's the same. Don, we know what's on your list. Don, we know what's on yours. Get the visa. Get the beers in. Do you know what I mean? As long as there's visas and as long as there's beer, you yeah. can have a boxing event. Well, do you know, listen, you know, we we all know what it's like as well, don't you? You know what I mean? When you're there, and, and let's face it, we we all love going away and we all love covering sport and, and, and boxing and everything else but you know sometimes the days can be very long sometimes they're not but sometimes the days can be very long when you've done lots of work I mean it's, it's really it suits everything in so many ways Saudi because there's no not much of a time difference it means that fights are going to take place in the UK about nine o'clock UK time or whatever yeah. you know it's great for that it, it as the Joshua reason the desert proved you know it, it was brilliant really as a pay-per-view but you know the thing is that people go it's like a mini holiday for punters and for working people exactly that yeah for yeah, working exactly. people as well at the end of your day yeah. there is nothing better than having a debrief with a beer you know before the event <laughs> and after the event you know well, here we go here we go again <laughs> so yeah well look I, I, I hold my Dom, hands up Dom, it's part listen, of the gig I've got to ask you Right, right. I've, I've been asking every boxer what's in their fridge. I probably don't need to ask you what's a in the fridge. That's yeah. what's in the back of his fridge. Uh, <laughs> right, well, you, you won't be surprised to know that there's there's a few cartons uh, this evening that, that are from my favourite takeaway. 
Oh, so, nice. um, yes. yeah, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, it doesn't matter how hot it is outside. The, nothing is going to discourage me from having my extra spicy tea from my, my mate taste of taste India down the road. So the, there is that, uh, there is, um, there's some extremely oh, chilled Cronenbergs Beautiful. and, uh, uh, a, little bit, a little bit of red there and white. Go. There you go, mate. There you go. That's there all you need. That's it? Some, actually a couple of craft IPAs as well, because I like the bitters <laughs> and I like the IPAs. There we go. So, so basically, Dom, in lockdown, you're just on a liquid diet. Yeah, simple as that. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm, no, I'm trying my best to, uh, you know, to uh, to limit my my fun time, as, as everybody is, because mm. you, you go daft if you, um, you know, mm. you, you indulge too much in anything. You've got to got to do what you can do. Every week, of course, Adam and I dive into the archives to pull out some of our favourite fights. This week, given that it is a massive night for the return of fight sports with the UFC in Jacksonville, Florida, Adam and I chose two of the most intriguing UFC fights that have ever taken place. I appreciate that there'll be people listening to this that are big boxing fans and maybe not necessarily too into MMA. Um, but give it a do. Give it a try this week. We'll recommend a couple of fights for you to go and have a bit of a watch of on YouTube. And you never know, you might end up liking it. So give it a crack. Um, I'm going to go first this week because Gareth's picked an absolute classic. From the vault, he's picked an absolute belter. And he was actually in attendance uh, for this classic fight as well. Um, so he'll get stuck into that. Um, mine is inspired by... A guy making a comeback after nearly three and a half years out of the octagon this evening. Dominic Cruz returns tonight at UFC 249 uh, to hopefully, in his eyes, become a three-time bantamweight champion. When he was last bantamweight champion, he came up against a guy called Cody Garbrandt, who pulled his pants down and slapped his backside. And that is the fight that I've picked. Take a listen to this. The fight starts, the second person starts trash-talking me. This fight started a long time ago. Dominic Cruz, Cody Garbrandt. Good head movement by Cody. Beautiful head movement. And he is talking trash to Dominic and laughing at him. This is very interesting. He's giving Dominic Cruz a taste of his own medicine when it comes to the trash talk as the fight's going on. And he's being very successful. I don't know about you, Gareth, but I absolutely love that because for me, fight sports is all about showmanship. I love that, that, that's why I love Naz back in the 90s when he was coming in on the magic carpet ride and he was dancing into the ring and then he was knocking people out. I love the razzmatazz of it all. And that particular night, Dominic Cruz, obviously, is a legend of the game. He's going to be in the Hall of Fame. And he was the bantamweight champion coming in. And bear in mind, he was coming in off the back of a great victory against TJ Dillashaw. Um, again, off the, off, off the back of a lengthy injury layoff. He fought a kid that night called Cody Garbrandt, who you've just heard there. And Cody, who talked the talk and bad-mouthed him all the way up to the fight, absolutely shone that evening. He was dancing in the octagon. He was moonwalking around. He put on an absolute clinic. And I don't, I don't know about you. I know that your fight's kind of showmanship as well in a moment or two. Uh, but that's what fight sports is all about for me. It's all about showbiz. You've got to entertain me. Yeah, I remember having a chat with Cody Garbrandt outside uh, the MGM uh, a couple of years ago. And um, the MGM, oh, sorry, not the MGM, Madison Square Garden, I mean, in New York, by a burger stall it was. <laughs> And he looked at me and he went, I oh. know it was weird. It was, it was a weird moment because 
He was there in a t-shirt, tiny he's little a cool t-shirt. Guy. He's got. Yeah. He, he's very, very cool. He's very cool, and he's got. He hasn't got a space on his body for a tattoo yet. No, nope, no. Nope. And and they come all the way up to his neck and up to his um almost to his um jawline. Yeah, he does. Yeah. And um, he, 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 about four or five fans around him getting pictures and everything, and I was trying to scoot back to my hotel, and he went, "Oi!" He went, "Oi, oi! I know you." And I went, "Yeah." And he was like, it was almost aggressive. He was standing by a hot dog stall on the on the corner of Madison Square Garden and whatever it is, forty fourth or wherever it is, and um, we we ended up having a little chat. And he's someone w- with that fight with um, Dominic Cruz. He'd literally targeted him since he was about eighteen years old. Yeah, and he's got an amazing backstory. He, he used to sell weed. He worked as a bouncer. He, he did. He trained as a coal miner. Yeah, yeah. He's 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 a really interesting guy. Like you say, and he's very cool as well. He's like, um, there's something cool about him. He's got a cool energy. Yeah. yeah. And that night against Dominic Cruz, because I do remember it distinctly, it was one of those moments when, and I think we may have talked about this on the show before, but it was one of those moments where um, great footballers are, are almost hypnotists, aren't they, with defenders, and they they, yeah. they, 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 they they can make footballers, they can nutmeg them, They can defenders, they can nutmeg them, they can go around them, but on the day when the defender only keeps his eyes on the ball and not the magic in front of him, yeah, he takes him out every time. He takes the Messi out every time. Messi doesn't score. Maradona doesn't score. And on this night, the genius of Dominic Cruz, and he's an amazing mover, yeah. the genius of Gar- Gar- Garbrandt on this night was he ignored all the mystique in front of him and he just played his own game and he ignored um, Cruz's dancing and his lateral movement and he absolutely mullered him. And for me, I think he was 25 at the time. Yeah. For me... That was the night of his life. And then, of course, Ed, for the next three years, yeah. twice he's been hammered by TJ Dillashaw. Yeah. And then he loses to Pedro Munoz. We're going to see more of... We're probably going to get phase three of Cody Garbrandt. Yeah, I hope so. Like because... we do with so many fighters. Yeah, yeah, we will. In his early 30s, he'll be brilliant again. I think he's 28 now. So maybe in his late 20s, we'll see him brilliant again. I'll tell you what it reminds me of a little bit, you know. It reminds me of the Chris Weidman situation where Weidman comes in and he's built for beating Anderson Silva. He beats Anderson Silva, yeah. and then he falls short against the Rockholds of this world. And don't get me wrong, Rockholds are an elite fighter, but he falls short when he comes up against other guys. Cody Garbrandt seems to be built to beat Dominic Cruz. And then obviously he's fallen short against TJ Dillashaw and, and Pedro Munoz, and he's got a fight booked for uh, Rafael Hassan-Sau, which is coming up in the not-too-distant future. I love him. I think he's a great guy. I thought that night he mm-hmm. was absolutely sensational. And if you're a fan or not a fan of MMA... Go and check it out on YouTube this week. Cody Garbrandt, when he became champion against Dominic Cruz, and there's a lovely little moment at the end where he... Well, I won't spoil it for you, but there's a moment at the end where he hands the belt to somebody else, Cody Garbrandt, and the story behind it is absolutely brilliant. So go and check it out. There's one word. Yeah, there's one word. You're going to watch a one-word, Adam, beatdown, which we weren't expecting. We weren't expecting that, by the way. That's what makes it such a tremendous fight. You and I, right, we've talked a lot of... um, uh, MMA tonight, a lot of UFC, and I just want to put it in context because a lot of our listeners are general sports fans. A lot of our listeners are boxing fans. So the fight that I've picked, this is pitches, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this a, is a, a guy whose trash talk is as good as Muhammad Ali's ever was and Conor McGregor's ever was. Mm. In a guy called the American Gangster, he's now runs a company called Bad Guy Inc. and his name is Chael Sonnen. He's a brilliant character. He's a he's a white wrestler. 
from Portland, Oregon, from Lynn in Oregon is the, it's the little name of the country town, against, again, I use this name with an underline in bold on the face of the greatest, one of the yeah. greatest fighters in his pomp you will ever see, Bruce Lee-like, he's on that level, yep. Anderson, the Spider, Silver, and they fought at the Oracle Arena, I was there, it was a great privilege, and it was August the 7th, 2010, have a listen to this. Anderson Silva, Teo Sonnen, UFC middleweight championship is on the line. Oh, he he rocked him. He hurt him. Big shot by Teo Sonnen. He hurt him again. Sonnen strikes early. Wow. And he's going to keep doing this. Why not? 11-fight win streak could very well be coming to an end. A record-setting win Triangle. Watch out. Triangle. This is trouble. This is trouble. Can he choke out Chael Sonnen? Chael Anderson Silva finishes his legs. fight. He's got his legs across. That's what's it. He's dead. It was an amazing night, Adam. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know at the time um, that Anderson Silva had gone into that fight with broken ribs and was in a lot of pain. Yeah. And he got beaten up for round after round by, by Chael Sonnen, whose left hand was like a missile that night. And he's, and he's a kind of scrambling, sprawling fighter. He'd got under Silver's skin. He'd said that the Brazilians spoke pig Latin. Mm. He said that they were deceptive people who'd smile at your face and stab you in the back. Literally, Chael Sonnen became the number one hate figure for Brazil. It led to this horrible rivalry that, that ended up just a couple of years ago, and now they're friends with Vanderlei Silva, that, yeah. who had felt that his entire country had been um, beaten up verbally by, yeah. Anderson, uh, by, by Chael Sonnen, insulted down to the wire. It was an amazing fight all the way to the fifth round. Silva was dominated by Sonnen. And then <laughs> Silva pulled off a bit of magic at the end in the last minute and a half to win the fight and, and continue his reign as middleweight champion. And Chael, who I call the El- I dubbed the Elvis of MMA that night. He almost, <laughs> we almost needed him to play a guitar at the press conference because his line afterwards was, I thought I won that fight for four and a half rounds. And, I thought, and because I won that fight for four and a half rounds... I'm still the champion. I beat up one of the greatest of all time for four and a half rounds. And I didn't even tap. It was a mistake. The guy can talk his way out of anything. And as his mother said to me afterwards, he used to be able to steal sweeties and cookies from the jar when he was five years old from the kitchen. And he could talk his way out of it before he got a smack. That's Chael Sonnen. But one of the great fights that was because of the drama involved. We could not believe. Weirdly, most people there, I think, were willing Chael to do it towards yeah. the end because it was so unexpected again, rather like Garbrandt and Cruz. You wanted them to fulfil this extraordinary turnaround. He was a big underdog um, and it was just an amazing, amazing fight that night. And, th- and that's what is the beauty of sport. In all sports, whatever sport that you follow, and obviously, obviously me and Gareth absolutely love fight sports, there's, there's something beautiful about the Rocky Balboa story, about the underdog story. And like you've said there, Anderson Silver at the time was, for me, the best mixed martial artist on the planet. He was so creative in his striking. He was beating people at their own game and he was doing it by taking the mick out of them. Chael Sonnen was, for me, and I don't know whether you agree with this, Gareth, 
he, he was a better talker than he was a fighter. He was brilliant at talking. Don't get me wrong. He lived up to it on certain occasions when he was in the octagon. But I just thought when that matchup was made that it was absolute well, mincemeat for Anderson Silva. But the way that yeah. Sonnen put a beat on him, it was unreal yeah, to it watch. Was, and like you said, by the unreal. end of it, by the end of it, I was a Chelsea Sonnen fan going, come on, please, just hang on, do the business. But he just couldn't get what it you done. Yeah, but what you can never take away from Chael Sonnen, even though people, and I agree with you, if he could have fought like he talked, he would have been <laughs> one of the greatest ever. He's and, and he is one. He's, he, no one else, no one else, by the way, has fought Anderson Silva, John Jones and Fedor Emelianenko. Yeah, all man. three of those, remember. And those three names are three of the very biggest names in the entire history of MMA. We're talking about the massive event tonight, just to finish off, because I know we've got to go to break. Main event: John Fitch, Thiago Alves, Clay Guida, Rafael dos Anjos, wow. Matt Hughes against Ricardo Almeida, Junior dos Santos, Roy Nelson. And I have to say this: they don't make cards like that anymore. Rick Story, Phil Davis, Johnny Hendricks, Tim Boat, Stefan Struve, Dennis Holman, Dustin Hazlett, Todd Brown, Charlie Brennan, and Rodney Wallace—all on that card as well. Some Unbelievable cards! Unbelievable. Names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, listen right yeah. I went for a fight you've gone for a full card so people are going to go and watch all yours on YouTube this week the whole Do, card yeah, well I've got to, well I've got to argue this because people talk about there are really exciting matchups that the UFC make now but there was a time Adam a decade ago and you know I've been around this for 15 years where I knew every name on the cards and like literally 70% of them were household names in MMA. Obviously, yeah. the sports changed. Yeah, there a was point. a time when they had 250 athletes when you literally knew 230 of them and you knew them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, you knew their um, record. the record. You knew everything changes. about them, yeah. Absolutely. The world changed. Exactly. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Given that it was a massive night for the UFC return in the wake of this pandemic, we caught up with former UFC welterweight world title challenger Dan Hardy. And this is what he told us from a fighter's perspective about the event taking place. One thing that I wanted to ask you, Paul, because obviously tonight happens behind closed doors and myself and Gareth have just been speaking about obviously the fight card in itself but one thing that we haven't really touched upon as of yet is how that will affect fighting behind closed doors these particular fighters now you experienced this in Brasilia recently just before lockdown you went down to UFC Brazil you were working down there that all happened behind closed doors so just talk me through protocols and various things like that and how you feel that atmosphere kind of affected that fight night well, I mean, to be honest, it was weird because although I was at the event, I was actually in, in a separate um, a separate building, like a gymnasium, because they were they were limiting the amount of people around the, around the octagon. Um, so, I mean, for me, I was I was basically watching on a TV feed, and it looked very much the same as a normal event, aside from you know the silence. I, I know the fighters could hear the commentators, which must have been quite strange, um, and then the walkout must have been, you know. <laughs> quite unusual as well because obviously you know there's nothing going on there's nothing to interact yeah. with there's no nothing to distract you. you you're walking at a distance and you're walking towards the octagon in, in a big empty arena i mean it, I, I would imagine for some fighters it might be quite daunting because they don't have that distraction of the uh, the live audience can you can you imagine a situation this evening where um it affects a fighter's performance for example in the in the cowboy and pettis fight pettis obviously his nickname showtime he kind of reacts quite a lot to crowd adrenaline and feeds off that whereas cowboy in the past has, has been quite open to say that he feels nerves when he's walking to the octagon and, and maybe not having people around will help him can, can you see that having any effect in the way that some of these fights play out later on certainly and, and i think cowboy is the biggest question on the card for me um I mean, the heavyweight one's another one as well, because with two big knockout punches, they might find themselves staring at each other and with no crowd going in the arena, there's nothing to kind of spur them on to yeah. start moving forward. Cowboy, on the, other, on the other hand, I don't know whether it's going to make him better or worse. I mean, he, he tends to do very well against people where he's relaxed and he feels like it's a sparring session. So an empty arena might help him. But then at the same time, like I talked about, if he's walking out through the arena towards an empty uh, an, an empty octagon that might be quite daunting and that might start to you know play on his nerves a little bit i think cowboy is the biggest question on the card though i'm just interested to see whether you know w whether any of the fights are slow paced because i think we've got all, all but one fight i think all but the main event were decisions in brasilia you know so it, i mean that does support the idea that uh, that you know a, a lack of audience might slow the fights down a little bit i gotta do it dan oi oi how are you? <laughs> I'm good, mate. How are you? Um, good. One of the things I was giggling about tonight, knowing you were coming on the show, was you'd have been fine walking to the Octagon tonight because you used to wear a mask for every fight anyway with the bandana on or the Dan banner on. Uh, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I could have I could have blended <laughs> in. That's the thing. I'd, I'd have had to come out without a bandana just to be the one standing out. 
<laughs> um, look, serious thing tonight, right? Let's imagine, and I want to mention, of course, I, I in, in the first hour of the show, I've mentioned George St. Pierre. And for those listening that aren't familiar with mixed martial arts, and we're doing a lot on mixed martial arts tonight, obviously, given that they're the first sport uh, to come back during the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown. Um, Dan Fort, and I was there and it was a privilege to be there. Dan Fort, I think, arguably a man who was in the top three of all time in George St. Pierre and drove his way um, to that title shot at a time where mixed martial arts didn't get enough credit in this country, nor did Dan get enough credit in this country. And he's finally going to get it, I think, eventually for what you achieved in the UFC Octagon and in your mixed martial arts career, Dan. And a lot of people won't know this, but you had to stop early because of a heart complaint. And I think people need to know this. Um, What I want to ask you is, if you were still active today and you'd say been based in America, would you have been pushing forward to be on this card or would you have had any concerns? And how do you think the fighters will have been looking at going into this event where it's almost they're almost guinea pigs for the whole process of all sport coming back? They're under scrutiny. They're being tested three times a day with anti antibody tests. COVID-19 swab tests, pre-tests before they arrive, temperature tests. Would you have been happy to, to, to be one of those guys? Yeah, I wouldn't have minded, to be honest. I mean, the thing is, when you're a fighter, you kind of feel a bit invincible anyway, like you can take on the world. So, you know, w- w- walking through uh, you know, w- walking through a room full of people with coronavirus probably wouldn't bother most of the people on the card, if I'm honest. I mean, it, you know, you mm-hmm. just kind of go about you, about your work. It's, it's about the fight. You've got your focus. You've got, you know, your, your preparations behind you. I'm sure a lot of these these fighters were just kind of happy to have something to focus their mind on. Um, I, I certainly feel like that, and I'm not even competing. It's just nice to have something live to, you know, to think about instead of the, the same monotony of the of the news. At the same time, we've also got to find ways of progressing forward. And you know, the, the fighters on the card are, you know, like like you said, they are the guinea pigs. They're the ones that are going to find out how these, these uh, health and safety measures are, are going to work out and, um, exactly. and, and you yeah. know, uh, how live sports continues from this point onwards. But someone's got to, got to make the first steps and it's bound to be the UFC in this, uh, in this kind of thing. Mm. Uh, Dan, earlier on, myself and Gareth were talking about the uh, bantamweight matchup between Henry Cejudo uh, and uh, former champion Dominic Cruz. Now, I want to get your take on this because obviously Dom does a similar role to yourself on the desk, calling fights former fighter as well you know you've been in the octagon that period of time out of the octagon on the desk watching fights how much do you think that helps your game and from your point of view watching it do you feel now that you know more about mixed martial arts studying it rather than being in the thick of it and training for it on a day-by-day basis yeah no no doubt i mean i don't know whether it's, it's different for don because he's still you know in his mind he's still a part of that division and still watching it take place around him Whereas I'm, you know, in my head, I'm not a part of any of the divisions. I'm just kind of watching it as a fan and an analyst now. So I don't know whether that changes it. But certainly, I mean, Dom will be watching fights, researching fighters that he wouldn't have normally paid any attention to. So he'll be learning new things. He'll also be seeing the same mistakes over and over again. And they're the patterns that develop when you watch a lot of uh, a lot of anything, I think. Um, and Dom's, you know, Dom's got an eye for those patterns and those rhythms in the sport. And I think that he's he's the kind of person that can adopt them into his game and, uh, and make use of them. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm excited. Are there advanced, this, yeah. I, I, just, I just feel like he's a, he can cause problems because of how smart he is. And, and Sorry, also, yeah. of course, Cejudo is very much coming up in weight. I mean, if he'd been a big bantamweight, I'd have been very concerned 
about Dominic Cruz in this fight. But given, I mean, we saw it at the weigh-ins yesterday. He's got big height and reach advantages in this fight. We know how he moves. I was describing him earlier as a very unique fighter in terms of his movement. He switches brilliantly and he's got to employ that game plan against the very robustuous kind of almost pancration fighter, uh, wrestler, brawler that Henry Cejudo is with very heavy hands. Yeah, I think, I mean, the footwork's going to be the key in this one. And what's interesting for me is that they've both got very different footwork. I mean, as we know, uh, Dominic Cruz is very lively. He's up on his toes. He, he kind of does that half-circle sweeping motion, uh, you know, across the front foot of his opponent. Yeah. Um, I, I've been calling it slingshot because I can't think of a better way a better way to describe it. But he kind of <laughs> he kind of throws himself across and uses the momentum to punch at the same time. What, what's what's going to be challenging for him to do that is, is Cejudo stepping forward and changing stances as he punches. Um, I mean, I think in the wrestling exchanges, Cejudo eventually comes out on top, even if they are lively scrambles. Um, but that will give him the confidence to push Dom Dom back, and I, and I do think that. He might get a little high on his toes and that chin might come up in the air if Cejudo's crashing forward pretty quickly. And as you said, Gareth, he's got heavy hands. Um, Dom's going to have to be on, on his game and on his toes for the whole 25 minutes in this one. Right, Mr Hardy, for our audience uh, that are maybe just dipping in uh, to mixed martial arts for the first time this evening, you can't pick either of the title fights. Give us a tip for where you think the fight of the night might be. Uh, main card of prelims, because I've got one for each. Go, but mate, this is your this is your show, man. Go for it. You can give us one of each. Let's go. I've, I've got to go with the old boys. I've got to go Petch's Cowboy. I mean, that, that's the one I'm most interested in. I, just, yeah. I like a rematch. I like veterans uh, fighting each other because, you know, they're so smart. They're, they're so uh, experienced. Um, you know, I also think, you know, there's questions around both of these fighters, where they're at in their career. Um, psychologically, how they deal with this fight, would it be an empty arena? I mean, you know, there are so many different storylines. Uh, as far as the Blood and Guts one, I mean, we're talking Jeremy Stevens, Calvin Cater. But the, mm. the most fascinating one for me is definitely Petty's Cowboy. Finally this week, I caught up with me old mucker, me old pal, Helwani Knows. It's Ariel Helwani, the esteemed MMA journalist for ESPN, who gave us a few insights into what the USA was thinking about the return of the UFC. What's the reaction like? It's almost the first sport to come back, Ariel. Yeah, certainly North American sport. We've seen a Korean baseball comeback that's gotten a lot of play here in America. But, I mean, there's a lot of excitement from the fans. You know, early on, I will say this. Early on, when this was becoming a reality, I did not feel 100% comfortable. I felt like it was a little too soon. And then I think part of our job as journalists is to serve the people. And you have to, pardon the pun, take the temperature of your audience. And I just found an overwhelming amount of, of excitement among the fans, wanting something to look forward to, wanting to perhaps have six hours of entertainment to think about something else, to gamble, to do God knows what. And my, my approach had to change. My approach had to be like, I need to serve these people. I need to get on board. I need to get excited about it as well. And I could say that if uh, the amount of media that I'm doing, let alone, you know, Dana White or the fighters are doing is any indication there's a large interest in this because, as you said, it's the only game in town. And credit to the UFC, they put together a really good card. And one thing that I've campaigned for for a long time is the fact that distance makes the heart grow fonder. 
you know, sometimes too much of a good thing isn't a good thing. And the one thing that we don't have in combat sports is an off-season. Now, in boxing, you'll have long stretches between big fights and promoters aren't putting on as many events as the UFC. But the UFC is putting on 42 events a year, and those 10 off-weeks are sprinkled throughout the year. So it really feels like they're going 52 weeks. This two-month stretch has, I think, raised the excitement level going into this card because the fans are jonesing for it. So I think all these things combined have really made for a nice concoction for the promotion where you have a lot of buzz and excitement for the event. Around my mainstream coverage, and you know, as you know, I'm you know I've been in the mainstream media as much as I love dabbling in the growing social media as well for a long time. Mainstream media here is sitting back and looking and saying, "Okay, these are the guys that are taking as much precautions as they can, but these are the guys that are taking the risk for the reward." Yeah. And everyone's sitting back and waiting to see what's going to happen. How's the mainstream media in America outside the fans? Is there, has anyone taken umbrage on it? I mean, you know, Bob Arum has to a certain extent, but Oscar De La Hoya has praised it. What's the, what do you gauge from the mainstream media in America? Uh, There's definitely been some criticism of it, but, you know, this, this analogy I don't know if it will mean anything to you, but I'll explain it to you. Back in the day, maybe 20 or so years ago, there was a famous football coach named Dennis Green, football as in American football. And he was playing on Monday night, which is a marquee slot for American football. That's an analogy on the last time you were on the show. Okay, but this is it. This is exactly (laughs) it. Now, the point, this is the best way that I can explain it. The point, because it's a good one. The point is, he said at the press conference about another team that he almost beat that was much better. They are who we thought they were. In essence, we could have exposed these guys. We're better than these guys, but, you know, we didn't do it. And I feel like the general reaction to this fight is, you know, MMA is who we thought it was. It, look, it's not – there's a reason why the Premier League or, or um, you know, the NBA or Major League Baseball isn't coming back in May and are still very far away because they have to do a lot more to get the events on. They have to do a lot more to put the players on the field or on the court, etc., There's no fighters association. There's no board of governors. Dana White could do whatever he wants. And if you don't want to fight, he'll go to the next guy. It's a lot easier for him to make this happen. Let's just call it like it is. And so if he wants to make it happen, he can make it happen. And so I think that a lot of people view that as like, yeah, we knew that about MMA. We knew that about fight sports. If the NBA or the Premier League was playing this weekend, I could assure you it would be a much bigger deal because we all know about the steps and the hurdles that need to be overcome in order to put on those events. And so I don't think there's all that many people surprised. It's like, oh, yeah, of course fight sports are first up. No, it's because it's that whole thing, like you say, the, the, the man in the street, the woman in the street is asking themselves at the moment. We're asked, being asked to stay at home, lockdown, uh, and social distance from people we love, people we want to see, our grandchildren, parents, whoever it may be, whereas... If soccer players came back or NBA players back, they're earning extraordinary amounts of money, and the money is part of it, people would say, and yet they can go shoulder to shoulder, they can tackle each other, so where's the inaccuracy in the world? But even in fight sports, there are inherent risks to these events, to these coming together of men and women who are going to fight each other the next eight days, 72 fighters, if they all come through their weigh-ins and so on, about 72 anyway, if it's 12 on each card, who are taking inherent risks. When the lockdown eases, on Sunday, Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, is going to say, we're going to ease over the next month, 
create more bubbles of people to be around, but don't mix outside that. But if you go back to work, I'm certain they'll say this. If you go back to work, it's your responsibility back to the workplace. Because if you can do your job from home, do it from home. Because presumably none of the fighters could pull the UFC up on corporate manslaughter if they die in this event, you know? Wow, way to get all dark and disturbed on us here, Gareth. Well, uh, but no. Look, the worst thing, I wanted to succeed tonight. I wanted to succeed on Wednesday and Saturday. We all do, because it will give uh, a pivotal moment for other combat sports to come back. Um, I don't want there to be a rash of tests that are positive for people, because it will put them at risk. But if someone, let's say, the worst case scenario, and we talk about it sometimes, in thankfully, we've never had a death in front of us. Right. In UFC. No, it would be, it would be uh, horrific for the sport. And look, um, when the fighters checked in, they had to do the, the swab test. They also had to do the antibody test. Now, the antibody test tells you within 10 to 15 minutes whether or not you've had it. The swab test will tell you if you have it. They also did the daily temperature checks. Now, the fighters got the results for their swab. No, excuse me. The fighters got the results for the antibody test, like I said, in minutes. As of us recording this, they told them, we'll call you if you test positive for the swab test. I haven't talked to every single person on the ground in Jacksonville, but I've talked to enough. Not a single one has gotten that phone call. I'd love to, I'd love to know, you know where it's being tested, who's doing the testing. You know, I have to say, I know it's uh, I know it's in vogue to uh, to kick Conor McGregor when he's down, but I think Conor McGregor has done a phenomenal job over the past two months, including as recently as Thursday, when I spoke to his manager Adi Attar, and he said, "Look, they're talking about him coming back in July, but he's watching these three events closely, not for the results, but he wants to know if they're doing things the right way, if they have a plan in place, if they are taking the proper precautions, and then only if he feels reassured that this is healthy." he'll come back or he'll consider coming back. I haven't heard that kind of rhetoric from a lot of fighters right now. A lot of the fighters just want to fight and I don't begrudge them. Obviously, Connor can stand to stay at home and can afford it for many, many years and they can. But I think it's important for people like him to speak up and say, hold on, we're not going to jump right into this, right? I want to see the results of these tests. I want to see how this plays out. I want to see if the staff members and the fighters are safe. So there's a big, there's a big bullseye on Dana White's back and there's a lot of pressure because yes, he's very confident and that's been part of his MO. That's who he is. But if something if something happens, then there's there's going to be a lot to answer for. Now, I've been very, very impressed by Conor McGregor during the pandemic lockdown. I, I it's the great it's the most mature we've ever seen him. Um, in fact, they were talking about him being president of Ireland a couple of days ago, weren't they? That he's been so good. Um, personal on a personal level, I was concerned about going. I'm still concerned about going to events both for personal reasons and generic reasons. Boxing has a different model, so it can't create events like the UFC can. But if this is successful and pay-per-view works without an audience and they can put together the right kinds of cards, do you think that, that the UFC could actually really give the kickstart to loads of other sports to get moving? I really do think those other major sports have their own systems in place, their own procedures. They have to answer to a lot. They have a lot more at risk. I mean, the Premier League isn't 
you know, isn't the UFC. The NBA isn't the UFC. And like I said, uh, Adam Silver, who's the commissioner of the NBA, can't decide on Monday that we're back. It's just not going to happen. You know, there's a whole process and the players have to be on board and the referees have to be on board and the coaches have to be on board and the owners have to be on board. And there's so much that has to go into that. And uh, it, it's like none of, none of that is at play here. None of that is at play. It's literally Dana White saying, let's get 24 fighters and let's, you know, load up the caravan and here we go. And the same is, is the case, by the way, for Bob Arum and Eddie Hearn and Frank Warren and uh, whomever, Oscar De La Hoya. So uh, it's just fight sports are different. And this is one of the many reasons why they are different. And that's why I'm not surprised to see them come back first. I'm not surprised that PGA is coming back. NASCAR is coming back first. These are the ones that are going to come back first. And then and also wrestling has been, you know, they don't have any kind of, you know, associations. So, and then we'll start to see, I think, the major, you know, sporting leagues come back around the world. Well, there you go, folks. Another action-packed fight night from us here on TalkSport with me and Adam Catterall. Don't forget, you can get it on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else where you get your podcast. Stay tuned. Don't forget to tell all your mates to subscribe. I hope you enjoyed the podcast this week. We'll have another action-packed one for you next week. Enjoy the fights. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.